You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, thanks for turning on and tuning in to Labor Relations Radio. So 2023 is about done. And what a year 2023 has been, right? Well, 2024 is right around the corner. And I know that there's a lot of employers out there that are just like, oh, God, what a whirlwind of a year this has been. And what we're talking about is specifically the National Labor Relations Board and all of the activity that's been occurring throughout the past year. And actually, the past couple years. Well, the attorneys over at Fisher Phillips wrote an article a few weeks ago entitled Labor Board Highlights Priorities for the New Year, Five Key Takeaways for Employers. So if you thought 2023 was bad, it's not necessarily going to end in 2024 as the key takeaway. And and they highlight some of the issues that are coming out through the or should be coming out through the National Labor Relations Board. Well, I'm going to post the link to that article under the audio portion of this episode. However, I thought it would be fun to kind of have a broader perspective or maybe a different perspective given from one of the other attorneys at Fisher Phillips by the name of Mike Carruth. And Mike is in Columbia, South Carolina, although he's got a national practice. And so we had a conversation on Friday evening about a whole array of things that employers ought to be looking at and a few other things on top of that. So without further ado, here's Mike Carruth. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Well, Mike Carruth, Fisher Phillips, welcome to Labor Relations Radio. It's great to have you. Yeah, very happy to be here. So you did an article, I think you co-wrote the article uh, a few weeks ago about some of the things that have been going on and some of the things that employers should be wary of going into 2024. And I thought we could possibly go into that. And for the listeners, it might be helpful to share kind of where you are. I know you've got a national practice. However, you've also got some ties to the Southeast. Yeah, um, I did. Well, I want to be clear. The article was written by several other partners in our labor practice but we all kind of participate and put input in on that. But I do know the article, very familiar. Yes, I'm in the Columbia, South Carolina office of Fisher and Phillips and have been here in Columbia, South Carolina my entire career. And based on a number of different events, I've uh, been very fortunate to participate in traditional labor work since the late 80s and continue to do that today. Do some litigation, but a lot of uh, traditional labor um, all over the United States. Uh, I've had campaigns in uh, many, many states, uh, most of the states in our country. You kind of don't just practice, obviously, here in South Carolina, but I thought we might be able to talk about what's also happening in the Southeast because we're seeing an uptick in activity and, of course, the auto workers going after several of the automakers who are located throughout the Southeast. And, you know, the... Activity seems to be ramping up with a specific focus by a specific union called the Union of Southern Service Workers. So maybe we could touch base on that as well or talk about that. 
Yeah, I think that's a very unique uh, situation and a unique uh, organization. I've been following that group uh, because it is here in the Southeast. And interestingly enough, uh, they formed here in Columbia, South Carolina in November of 2022. Uh, and I find that interesting since South Carolina is the least unionized state in the country. Uh, why that would be the launching location for this entity, but it, it is out there. And I will say this, uh, all labor unions at this point, 2023, have become very, very uh, proficient in their social media efforts. And I will say the Union of Southern Service Workers is probably leading the way uh, they have an impressive social media game and outreach. It's 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 prolific, uh, and it, it, there's a lot to that. Yeah, I was just having this conversation yesterday, and the USSW, so for those of us that are kind of boomers, we kind of focus on Facebook and Twitter or X, you know, formerly known as Twitter, and maybe YouTube, but they're, they've got 113,000 followers on TikTok. And it seems like a lot of the unions have, have moved over to TikTok to get their yeah, messages they, out. Yeah, they, they hit quick. They have strong messages. It's very uh, bold statements, very strong, aggressive messages that they can put very uh, effectively in the, the type of small format or short length of time that you have with TikTok, yes. Yeah, a lot of videos. And they're, they've hit, at least publicly, and they may have hit some others that I just haven't kept track of, but they've hit Waffle House. They're very active in Georgia right now with Waffle House. They hit a small employer with three restaurants down in Savannah. And then around your neck of the woods, they've hit Waffle House, Publix, I think Burger King, and maybe a few others. And they kind of do flash mob protests. Yeah, that's exactly right. Well, uh, so they launched in November of 2022. And then probably the next major event they had there in April of this year, they had their single-day safety-focused walkout that they held all over the southeast. I think they had participants in North Carolina and South Carolina. I know they had South Carolina for sure. And that went outside of the fast food, rapid serve operations, retail operations. They had some manufacturing operations that participated in, in that uh, one. It was a one day. Hmm. They were very structured. They uh, clearly were up on the law and what would make sure that people were protected. But that was in April, and, and that was a uh, – but that covered so, – so it did go outside of uh, retail and restaurants, but they had a very strong – wide-ranging uh, event that in April. So, Mike, let me ask you, this is a question I couldn't quite answer, but it seems to me that based on the articles I've seen, most of their activity is in areas where there's college campuses. So obviously, obviously you've got in Columbia, USC, Atlanta, I'm not sure what, there's a bunch of colleges there, but down in Savannah, they've got SCAD and maybe a couple others, University of Savannah or whatever. Do you Are you seeing any kind of correlation that they're bringing in all these college kids to do their protests with them? You know, I, I don't know that. Uh, I know they do 
do the flash walkout, flash protest right. thing that you described. I don't know who the participants are, but when they do those events that create a huge social media event for them, it looks like, if you see that on social media, that the company, the location they're targeting has this huge amount of employees that support this effort. That's not accurate, but I don't know if that cast that is there are coming from uh, college age individuals or not. But, but to me, their formula is they get one or two people from the targeted employer to be the face and to get their TikTok message out. Right. And they're surrounded by a group of people all wearing their, uh, most of their shirts are always red. So they're red USSW uh, shirts um, in those events. So I hadn't, I, I don't know. That's very good because we have no, because the people aren't people from the employers that would need legal assistance and have labor law questions about what to do. That's what we've heard, that, that two of our people are involved, Mike, and 20 people are outside of our place of, of work. Yeah, and the media is always invited to get the press coverage. Yeah, I will. An interesting tidbit, and I, and I did notice that they've got some airplay just in the last day, again, jumping back on the issue of safety concerns, which are all valid. And, and every you and I both work with employers, and every employer focuses a great deal on safety and takes that very seriously. So especially in manufacturing, um, it's a concern, but it's it's always proper to raise those issues. But my experience as employers definitely address that. But here's something I've seen in the summer of this year, the USSW also had their like uh, organizer training program. That's right. I think they were paying people 21 to $22 an hour to participate in that. And what I've seen, I don't know what that program involved. I have no idea what they did. But I do believe that whoever showed up for that, that they did use those people to go attend some of these events at uh, targeted employers. And I do think that they did loan those people out to other organizing activity around the Southeast. I think if, if another union had activity, I think these people were made available to participate in that activity. So that's one interesting thing. So they're kind of a mercenary force available for the steel workers if they needed them. And I guess potentially for the UAW as this uh, campaign that they've launched goes forward. But here's what I've seen. A lot of the companies they do target were smaller and because they were paying 21 to $22 an hour for these people to organize and protest on behalf of the USSW, I've had several clients had people leave and go to work for the union. And, and so they leave the organization, the entity, the employer where they were trying to make improvements, quote unquote, and now are working for the union and traveling to Georgia and to Florida to uh, organize. So they're no longer in the companies where they, it all started. Yeah. So that, that training program was an eight week training program <laughs> in Columbia. And we should probably back up for the listeners. This whole USSW thing is being bankrolled by the Service Employees International Union, and which is the same union that started the Fight for 15 movement back in, is actually Blueprint uh, 2009, but 
you know, emerged in 2012. They're the ones that, that helped back Occupy Wall Street. And so, and then they're also the ones that are backing Workers United or Workers United is an affiliate of the SEIU, which has unionized a bunch of Starbucks stores. So the, the question and part of the conversation I was having yesterday, the question that emerges, is this a union trying to get new members or are they trying to just stir things up pre-2024? Because that's kind of what was happening with the fight for 15 and and that spreading across the United States. Yeah, uh, I, I'll... You know, uh, I'll borrow some, I think it's military lingo. I, I think it's more of a psyops uh, effort mm. than an actual organizing effort because they're all over the place. They're, they're going to this company. I know you named some companies that seem to be their focus at this point, but when they were launching in April and uh, what I, my experience, they're just wherever they get somebody to respond to some type of social media or any internet survey, scan their little logo or emblem and put information in, they'll show up there, which is, yeah, that's just not my experience over the decades with how unions actually try to organize an operation that they focus on an organization and a single organization and, and continue to go after, but, but so I, I think they're more of a of a liaison to the community or something, or just trying to set a tone more than anything. Well, one of their videos, and I think it's on their webpage, has a phrase on there: "Change the South, change the nation," and that kind of led lended me think to think that it's more of a political, as you call it, psyops. Um, there, it's more politically driven than just trying to organize a Waffle House or Burger King or whatever else they're doing. They yeah. they went after McDonald's, you know, for years with the Fight for 15 movement and failed. They've gotten successful at unionizing three, 400 Starbucks now, but now they're having trouble getting contracts because they went store by store. And I just, I don't know what their game plan is. It's, it's just been interesting yeah. to watch. Yeah, and I will mention that. Now, the the, the Starbucks thing, uh, I have several thoughts on that, and uh, I did follow that because of some of the uh, companies that we do work for follow, we don't have anything to do with Starbucks nor any input or involvement in any of that effort. But, you know, a lot of those Starbucks uh, operations were organized when the labor board was requiring uh, the mail ballot uh, mm-hmm. elections. And based on my knowledge of that information, most of those Starbucks stores are going to have between 30 and 35 people that would be in the unit, baristas and thing, folks in those job categories. And what you saw, if you actually looked at each of those 300-plus, close to 400 elections now, is there would be 35 eligible voters and 12 people voting. And there would be nine right. who voted for the union and three who voted against the union. So you had 12, nine people out of 35 would frequently result in that facility having union representation based on how our process works. So I, I think, you know, the media is not going to report it that way. You and your podcast will have that on there for sure. But uh, <laughs> the media is not going to point that out, that it was mail ballot and it was really 
uh, less than 10% of the people really wanted a union in that facility. That's, that's not the, the visual they're trying to create, but that, that, that's what it was. Yeah. Well, and the other thing that gets overlooked is, you know, we're talking about the media. You always see hundreds of stores have been unionized. Okay. Well, let's say, let's use 300 out of 9,000 corporate owned stores. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's a big media story, which goes to the whole media bias that's out there. As I was mentioning before we got on, I, I mentioned very briefly the conviction of the labor leader, Johnny Dock up in Philadelphia that happened yesterday. And I noticed that's kind of a national story because he controlled Pennsylvania and it's not been reported by any major outlets. You know, it's been Philadelphia Inquirer, even Pittsburgh Post-Gazette hasn't even done it. And that's on the other side of the state. Of course, their writers are out on strike, but yeah, it's just the, the bias out there in the media. And I'm trying to be fair and balanced every time I do this, but it, you know, it's like, come on guys, report something. Reports and and also that's a hundred percent correct. And I, and I will say this: the Starbucks activity got the media focus, and it was always presented in the light favorable to the labor organization. And I think that that did result in some level of spinoff activity, and that just catching on. And I think places that it may not have caught on if the media coverage hadn't been there or if the media coverage had been more accurate. So I, I do think employers that listen to this in your audience, I think the, 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 the media coverage, I think, does have an impact. I will say that from my perspective. Uh, and the other point I'll add with this recent UAW activity, uh, I, I, I do think there's a possibility that while the Workers United effort, the SEIU effort at Starbucks got media attention and caused – some level of spinoff activity there. I do think there is a potential for this UAW activity because it's now caught the media attention in the manufacturing sector. So I do think that is a potential issue there. And it's been too early to see, but I do think that that potential exists. Well, yeah, and, and kind of focusing on using the UAW, focusing on the media, you know, Sean Fain is being portrayed as the second coming of Walter Ruther. And it's interesting because he's only been in office now eight months. And the media seems to have forgotten the fact that they have spent, the UAW has spent years under the cloud of corruption, where two of their presidents, their most recent presidents, well, actually, as, as three presidents go, two of them went to prison. And it's like, you know, where's the media? Like, they're not even covering the other side of this. They're not. They're not covering that. And another if I was in the media and I was covering this, and if you listen to what uh, President Fain uh, is saying, they're clearly trying to take advantage of whatever they've accomplished with the Detroit Three and saying, look at what we have accomplished. You need to come with us to accomplish the same thing. Well, you know, Everybody operates based on what the market demands are. Law firms do it. Every business does. What is the market dictating we need to do? Well, the market has, if it has adjusted, the non-union operations hadn't had time to uh, reconfigure if what the UAW has done has really affected the market. The media will make you feel that way. So that's one thing. 
so the UAW, I think, is under some pressure to hit quick before the non-union operations do what logical, positive, effective businesses do, which is we're going to adjust to the market and we're going to be smart because we've got to hire and retain qualified people. So we don't need a third party to tell us that. We just have to have the data and the time to do that. That's number one. And then President Fain also is talking about how they accomplish that. Well, you know, I don't know if I would want to work in a company where the third party refused to shake the hands of the leadership of the people and went through a contentious six-week strike to get what the market is saying is fair and appropriate. So, I mean, there's some holes there that if I was in the media that I would be covering. But there, there are some things if I was in the media that I would be say, asking questions about. So the way you did this is the best and only way to ensure fair market wages. Well, and, yeah, and, and CNN, I did a post on this. CNN, I think it was a week and a half ago, did a story about all these double-digit increases in labor contracts. And to be fair, the UAW got a good contract. They got 25%, I think it was, although the the big three were offering 20% before the strike, they got 25% in the contract. What the media is not covering, or CNN in this piece, is that, A, it's a front-loaded contract, which means that the increases, the double digit was 11% or 11.5% in the first year. Well, they're doing a clawback from three years of being or four years of being in that contract without any increases, right? Right. Yes. So, and it's just not being covered that way. The UPS thing, same thing. You know, front-loaded contract. It's right up front, and then it goes to three percent or two and a half or whatever. You know, right. and it's part of it. I don't know if it's the naivete of the reporters about labor relations, or it's just their biases. Yeah, I, uh, I have my my opinion on that, uh, but yeah, it could be. That's a fair. It could be. They just don't understand. Right. Uh, yeah, you brought that up. One of the things, again, I don't, maybe, you know, uh, I just heard this trying to keep up with, uh, current events. You know, the, one of the things that I, I just thought was interesting in the Teamster contract, they made a big deal out of people driving those UPS trucks without air conditioning. Mm-hmm. Look, I can understand that. Yeah. I'm, I'm a, I'm a overweight guy living in South Carolina. I definitely need air conditioning in my vehicle. So I have a, 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 a sympathetic thought and uh, positions toward anybody over vehicle air conditioning. But what I heard was that they were talking about how they accomplished that. But what I heard was is that the contract requires air conditioning for any new trucks put in yeah. uh, place. Not, not They're not going out there and putting air conditioning in existing trucks. So, People that are currently working and driving those trucks didn't have a single change in their climate. Right. But anyway, yeah, you know, to me, you know, they made a big deal out of it and 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 made it sound like there was this huge effort to make things better for their members. But no, it's just for new trucks. Yeah, the new, the new, the new people driving trucks. Beginning in twenty twenty four, anything new that they buy, I think, is the thing. I don't know how big their truck fleet is. But, right. you know, for them to go back and retrofit, say it's 200,000 vehicles, yeah, right? that's crazy. Yeah, that's right. So, so again, I'm, I'm, again, I'm not, uh, 
I just think the way that, I think that's just an example of how the media portrays that and how they because I just heard people just go off on that. I go off on that whole thing. I had an episode with a UPS employee post contract, and he's part of the rank and file committee. And his comments were interesting because the union was out there touting the win, how they're converting all these temps to full time and all that. He said it's like seven or ten thousand jobs. We've got one hundred eighty thousand people who are temps or whatever his numbers were. But it's like right. look good in the press, but really it's not the full story. Right? Yeah, it's understanding. Anyway, again, I'm I'm not trying to you know split hairs on the whole issue here, but. I just, again, I think there are so many different examples of how you could evaluate how the media covers these things based on what the facts are and then what really has, has occurred. So we, uh, it's a Friday afternoon and we, we started to talk about things that employers should be looking for. Um, and I kind of took you down a, a bunch of different rabbit holes, but what is so we've just spent a year of employers getting hammered over the head with semex short elections are going to be coming back in another couple of weeks what are employers to be looking forward to not necessarily in a positive way in 2024 uh well there are a number of things uh and and i'm gonna put them in uh, bigger categories the article you referenced uh, i think does a good job of breaking down some but personally based on things that have happened since CMAX and what I see coming forward and knowing uh, what's going to happen with the expedited election rules going in, I, I do think employers, if you have any idea or concern that you could have union activity, it is going to occur in the first part of 2024 because all these advantages for organized labor do exist now. And, the presidential election one way or the other is going to influence or impact that it could exacerbate it or it could curtail it now if there's a change in november that could curtail it it's still going to take two years for a change at the labor board to change the things that have put in, put into place now. So um, employers need to understand it. it. It's not going to automatically go off in December of 2024 if there is a change. So so what so what should they be thinking about? I, I do think the micro unit issue is going to be a big, big strategy. So if your operations are such that you have readily identifiable separate and distinct parts of your operation and you think you could be targeted, I think you need to look at that and understand that and do one of two things. You either need to prepare for a campaign in that reduced size unit, that micro unit, or you need to take steps to see if you can within your operational practices, take steps to reinforce the fact that it's not actually a readily identifiable and separate uh, entity, that it would make more sense for that to be part of a bigger unit. So I, I, you do need to pay attention to that. So I haven't done a lot of uh, episodes on micro units, and it's been around since 2011 with specialty healthcare. But real quickly, can you 
can we dive into that just real quick? Because I don't know that a lot of today's HR folks are familiar with micro units. Okay, so 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 what's happening with with the so uh, especially healthcare kicked it off and then it went back and now it's back again with, with with the decision that came out earlier. So the micro units are back. So traditionally, you would see a union go for what we would call a wall to wall, so all production and maintenance. And I'll just focus in in manufacturing because that's where I have most of my experience. Uh, but a wall to wall. But with the micro unit analysis process, if there's a readily identifiable group within your uh, organization, the union under this new standard can file a petition for that readily identifiable. And if that is a consistent and, uh, you know, kind of uh, monolithic entity, that there's no other employees coming in, there's, there's like just, you know, operator technician A's that all do this, and that's all they're trying to organize, then it's going to be very, very difficult to overcome that. And that could be a, a group that only has 25 people in a unit and you have a full plant of 500. So they're singling out 25. Um, and the only way that you could say, well, that makes no sense, is you're going to have to show this increased heightened standard of an overwhelming community of interest. So it's much harder than it was under the prior state. You want to show that it's really almost just inappropriate. It would be contrary to the the law that we have to to not include that smaller unit in with everybody else. And that's a very hard standard. You're not going to if if they only have one single group of people in that micro unit, I, I, and there's really no interchange, and people don't move around, and people aren't hired from this, and there's not a, there's not a high level of of uh, common management and interchange and policies, then you're not going to win there. Yeah. So for example, a quality inspection group that's in a manufacturing plant or a shipping and receiving, or maybe just shipping if they're on the other side of the building is receiving could be a a micro unit, right? Right. Yeah. I think uh, the old example that's been with specialty healthcare was the the, the folks that sold women's shoes on the department store in New right. York. That, Is that Macy's? So the, the, yeah, I think it might have been Bergdorf's. Okay, right. Uh, yeah, but uh, but anyway, so they, they, they sold women's shoes on the seventh floor. I think that something like that. I, don't, I remember that don't case. Hold me to that. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, but anyway, it's, so. It's like the second and fourth floor, but not the first and the third. And Yeah, yeah. and, and the, the people sold shoes on other floors, but it was just the women's shoes that they were yeah. going after. Yeah. Something like, I could be totally wrong, so I, you know, I don't know how you get kind of uh, listener feedback, but, uh, but the point is that it can be very precise. Right. It can be very limited. So the key would be cross-training and floating folks back and forth here and there and and same management, same work rules. Yes, same compensation, you know, terms and conditions of employment, same management, and it's really the interchange is what I always talk to clients about. And, you know, when I talk to clients about it, you know, on a lot of the issues we deal with in the labor world, I say now, so let's start off with what you have to have. What do your operations need uh, to be optimal, to be in the best? So those are the practices that you have to have to be the most competitive, most efficient. So within that framework, are there any options that you can legally consider under the National Labor Relations Act to make it more difficult for a micro unit? So just 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 to enhance that because they'll 
I mean, if you go to these hearings, you just, I, I just could go on for days, Peter, talking to you about the examples of what people, how they will interpret what really happens in a business compared to what really does happen in a business. So, so you're really going to have to make it where you can demonstrate easily uh, in an evidentiary manner that, that there's this high level of interchange and uh, commonality between the different work groups. Well, there's a quote I heard, and I don't know if it was written at the national level or at a, in a, some decision in a region, but it's I've always remembered it, that it's not the most appropriate unit, it's an appropriate unit yeah, that yeah. the labor board uses. That's correct. It doesn't have to be the best, it just has to be appropriate. That's right. Right. So... Well, I, yeah. I apologize for going down that little rabbit hole, but I no, figured no. you mentioned it as something to watch for. Right. And, and what else do you suspect is coming down the pike? Well, the big thing I, I think is going to be uh, the use of the bargaining order. Now, so CMEX mm. set this up. It's a much more aggressive uh, front-end use of bargaining orders. So uh, what I what I'm talking to clients about when I'm helping them lawfully consider their options and responding to union activity is doing everything we can possibly think of to make it very hard to claim that what has been done violates the National Labor Relations Act through, through multiple, number one, making sure what you're doing and saying complies with the law. Uh, and number two, making sure that you can prove that your lawful communications were the totality of what was discussed with employees, that there's no deviation uh, from that. So I think we're all familiar uh, with, you know, companies having scripts uh, that uh, are vetted by attorneys to make sure that everything's lawful. But I've actually had objection proceedings where the witnesses for the labor organization would say, contrary to the testimony of 25 other attendees to the meeting, yes, he had a script, but the plant manager in the middle of the meeting set down that script and said, I just want you to know that I think this plant will close if the union comes in. Then he picked up his script and continued reading, which the plant manager <laughs> did not do that, but uh, that is what they would say. Uh, you know, that's resulted in me having some campaigns where the plant manager walks in, uh, there's a GoPro on the podium, the GoPro is pointed at him, he walks in, walks up, and pulls out his script, has the GoPro on him, reads his script, and turns and walks out. So there's no, uh, or a more difficult uh, process for saying that he put down his script and <laughs> and made a uh, an ad hoc statement in the middle. But anyway. Right. So, so, so the micro unit thing, and then I think you're just going to have to think through ever all your you, don't, I don't hope employers don't give up. I mean, that's 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 what the intent is. They want you to give up. They don't want you to do it. They don't want you to help make your employees informed. And and it's not union busting to tell people what their legal rights are. That that is not union busting. The, the statute provides employers the right to lawfully state their position. That's clear, but they, I think they have, not only do they have a right, I think they have a duty to make sure employees who don't have experience with unions and third-party representation understand how that really can work and and what those entities uh, are all about. 
uh, not just what those people uh, and entities tell them they're all about, but what what have they all been about? So, uh, you know, I think it's important to to not give up on that, but just to study it, understand it, and uh, I think you can take reasonable steps to effectively communicate. So those those would be the, my my two things. There there are other issues, and again, the article that you refer to has has a number of things like look at your work rules, uh, be aware of the AI issue and monitoring. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the interchange between the different agencies. I think that's going to be a hot issue in, in uh, 2024, them exchanging information. So if they find out something here uh, at the NLRA, they're going to pass it on to the DOL. Or if OSHA finds out something, uh, they'll pass it on to the, or if the NLRB finds out, they'll pass it on to OSHA, those kind of things. So all those, those are very realistic problems or potentials. Uh, events, but uh, the two things, the micro unit and the bargaining order issues would be from what I do and what I've seen are big things. Yeah, you just mentioned the um, cross-agency cooperation. There's, and this goes back to the Obama administration, there's this approach that the government is doing currently and then it did again back in 2016 or 2014 this whole of government approach in going after employers. And so they'll use, it's almost like a corporate campaign that's run by the government. (laughs) And it, which is fascinating to me, but it's one of those things that we've seen it before. It's coming back. It's just coming back on steroids now. Yeah. 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 All all that. Yeah. I think the first part of the next year is going to be just be a, a a lot of that. It's going to really, so, so you said that a few minutes ago, and I wanted to hone in on that because I, I, I may be looking at it from a slightly different angle, but you're expecting the activity to increase in the first half of 2024, you said. And now the question I'm asking you, because it is an election year, are you saying just the first half of the year because the election's in the latter half of the year? Yeah, because, yeah, this has been my experience, Peter. I'm not sure about your experience. I think but, that's where I, we're probably yeah. on the same page. I just wanted to hone, hone in. Yeah. On I mean, I mean, cause uh, again, uh, everybody has a right to support the political candidates that they, they, they want to support. And I, I just don't think it's inaccurate and inappropriate to say that labor organizations, uh, you know, have certain parties that they're going to support. And I do think some point after the midpoint of 2024, they're going to focus on that. They're going to focus right. on that election. Okay. And they're going to, I figured you're going with that. Yeah, that's exactly right. So I think the first part, it, it could continue through the whole year if they, they catch a lot of low-hanging fruit or some of these things. I mean, the labor board starts granting bargaining orders, you know, four times a week to everybody that gets a, you know, that has a uh, overly broad solicitation policy in their handbook. Uh, and they say, oh, that's a bargaining order. I mean, right. all that could continue through the election. But, but if you're talking about things that need boots on the ground, and going to have them committing resources to it. I think do think the presidential election will uh, slow that. That's just been my experience over. Yeah, it's a few decades. So I I figured that's where you're going with that. I just wanted to clarify it. But that what happens is the unions are the boots on the ground for whoever the political candidate is of their choice, and so they do they spend the probably around Labor Day to November whenever yeah, the election right. is on doing yeah. the um, yeah. get out the vote efforts in various cities and towns and going right door and all that. Yeah. I think you, that's probably a better, more concise prediction on the, the breakdown. I, I've been, I've been throwing out the middle of the year, just 
But you're probably right. The Labor Day is probably the. Well, they may start doing their planning meetings, you know, by summertime, but it's, it's generally the real push is towards the end, you know, getting out the votes, doing drive, driving people to the, the polling areas and all that stuff. Yeah. 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 But I will say being in South Carolina, I have seen that sometimes uh, we have activity when it's uh, warmer here and colder other places too. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Everybody wants to come. It's a great step. Well, Mike, I appreciate you coming on on a Friday afternoon. Yeah. Uh, I know you're probably looking forward to getting out and, and enjoying the weekend a little bit. Yeah, I hope so. It's a little cool, but uh, sunny today, so uh, uh, looking forward to it. But thank you. It's been very enjoyable. enjoyed the conversation. It's uh, nice to be able to sit down and talk about some of these things and uh, kind of talk about more of the practical parts of this, too. So I enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Well, we'll have to do it again. Thanks Thanks for coming on Labor Relations Radio. Yeah, you have a great weekend. You too. So that was Mike Carruth, an attorney with the law firm Fisher Phillips, and his office is located here in the southeast. I'm going to include the links to his bio as well as contact information under the audio portion of this episode of Labor Relations Radio. In any case, that wraps up another episode. I'm your host, Peter List. If you want to reach out, you can reach out on Twitter or X, the app formerly known as Twitter, at Workplace Report. That's at Workplace RPT. Give us a call at 1-888-668-6466 or leave a comment under the audio portion of this episode. As always, thanks for listening and have a great week. I'm just a man living in one eye stand to tell you what I need. Oh, Black Creek, take me to that place and wash my sins away. You have been listening to Labor Relations Radio. Hey, Labor Relations Radio listeners, this is just a quick reminder. If you enjoy Labor Relations Radio, make sure you share these episodes with your colleagues and make sure you and your colleagues visit laborunionnews.com and subscribe to our News Digest.